And uh, so if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we started on this lesson uh, last week and we didn't, didn't get um, through with it. And so we're going to pick up tonight and see how far we get. As I said, we've been going through this study of separation, understanding separation. And up until now, I've been dealing with the importance of separation. I've been dealing with God's holiness as his premier characteristic. It is the number one characteristic of God. Above everything else. Everything else. God is first and foremost holy. Because that's what the angels say to him. Consistently, constantly around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not love. His love does not take preeminence over his holiness. Listen, I know we've covered this, but this is so important because the church world is getting it so wrong today. They elevate his love above his holiness. And when you do that, you get a skewed picture of God. If his love was preeminent above his holiness, then there would be no need for redemption. He would just take us to heaven the way we are. Because he loves us that much. There's no need to redeem us. If his love is first and foremost. But it's not. His holiness is preeminent above his love. That's why we have to be redeemed. Because we are sinful. We are unholy. And as much as he loves us, his holiness demands that something be done about our ungodly situation. So I've spent time dealing with all that and and, and I've led us to the point where we're ready to start getting into some standards of holiness. And that's what we started doing last week. And we started off with the easy stuff. Or we intended to start off with the easy stuff. We didn't quite get into it. But easy for most of us, I think. Now, if this was a new converts course, it may not be so easy for some new converts. Uh, new converts, tune in on Sunday morning. Be here Sunday morning. We're, we're trying to help you with, with those basic principles there. But we're going a little deeper on our Tuesday nights. And, and I'm telling you, church, I've never, in, in, in my 50-plus years of serving God, 51 years, 51 and a half, if you want to be technical. That I've served God. I've never seen a day like we are in right now. When so many churches are abandoning the principles of separation. They're just walking away from it. They're just laying it down. They are suddenly deciding that all the things that we have stood for all these years really don't matter. And, and the mantra is, well, there's no Bible for it. 
And they're taking things, even like Deuteronomy 22.5, and trying to just explain it away. And the sad thing is, even in conservative churches, we have entire congregations that don't have a clue why we live the way we live. There's been one scripture used over and over and over, and it's obey them that have the rule over you. So, so the mantra is do it because I said do it. I'm your pastor. I said it. This is the way it's going to be. And that's all they've known. And so now we've got generations of preachers that have been raised never being taught why we live the way we live. And therefore, they think it's not biblical. I don't want this church to ever have that issue. We're going to have our issues because we're human. No church is ever going to be perfect. And if you ever find the perfect church, please don't join it. You'll mess up their record. Because you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. Well, hallelujah. I'm telling you, we'll have our issues, but I don't ever want one of the issues of the truth church of Olathe to ever be that we are wavering on separation. I'm telling you, when they lay me in the ground, over here at the Olathe Cemetery, right close to Brother Weems, when they put me there, I want to have been able to close my eyes with a peace knowing that this church in which I have invested my life still believes in the essentiality of separation. Without which no man shall see the Lord. God help us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 is our text for this lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? Now I want to tell you, and I explained this last week, this particular passage is dealing with the church as a whole. It's dealing with, with all of us together. That the church is God's temple. But this principle applies to any temple of God. That's why Jesus went in and drove the money changers out of that physical building. Because the physical building was still designated by God as holy. 
So if it's the physical building we're talking about, God's temple is holy. If it's the church that we're talking about, God's temple is holy. Or if, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul then brings it down and says, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so if we're talking about your body, that too is to be holy. And the principle applies. God's temple is holy. And if you defile God's temple, whether it's the church, the building, or your body, if you defile the temple, destruction is imminent. That is the principle of God. I know you're standing, but listen to me, church. I've said it before, but I say again, this is why churches resort to gimmicks. This is why they paint their walls black and their ceilings black and they turn on their, their strobe lights and their spotlights and their colored lights and they get out the fog machines and they do all this other nonsense. God's presence is not there. That's why they're using gimmicks because the presence of God is no longer there. So they're trying to make up something. And if you've got the Holy Ghost, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference between what we have felt here tonight and what they feel. And I'm not throwing stones at them. I'm just stating facts. But God's temple is holy. And God's not going to stick around when his temple becomes defiled. Again, when Jesus drove out the money changers, what happened? Immediately after he drove them out, he purified that temple, and what was the next thing that happened? They brought in the blind and the halt and the lame, and he healed them in the temple. Now, why weren't they being healed in the temple before? Because it was defiled. You want to see the glory of God? Get the temple clean. Keep the temple clean. That's when you're going to see the glory of God. And so tonight we are talking about a clean temple. A clean temple. This is part two of this lesson. A clean temple temple. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands, lift your voices. Let's ask the Lord to help us tonight. Can we, everybody, let's talk to the Lord. you Jesus come on let's worship him together everybody let's worship him let's worship him 
Lift your voices and give God some praise right now. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. So please allow me tonight to do a little review of our previous lesson just to kind of be a refresher of where we were, what we covered. And I'll try to go through this quickly because I, I don't have that much time and I really want to get in to some new material here tonight. But, but we, we talked about in the opening of last week's lesson the fact that a considerable portion of the first five books of the Bible, uh, or at least four of those five books, you get into the book of Exodus beginning from that point through Deuteronomy, there is a considerable portion of those books that give explicit instructions concerning the, the building and the care and the use of the house of God, the tabernacle. And, and it, was, it was given as an example of the truth that God does not allow for carelessness or abuse when it comes to the holy thing. So I pointed out to you, when, when Uzzah just reached out to steady the ark, God smote him. And, and this all came about, not because God didn't care about the ark, but because God did care about it, because it was holy. And because it was holy, you don't just handle it any old way. I hope you're hearing me tonight. And, and I hope that you're applying this principle to the temple of your body. You can't just handle it any old way. You can't just do what you want to do. You can't just dress it the way you want to dress it. It's holy unto God. And so... When our bodies have been made holy by the indwelling presence of God, the Lord is definitely concerned about how we treat that body. He cares about that. And we need to glorify God in our bodies and in our spirits because they both belong to God. That's what the Bible tells us. And this truth is so serious with God. It is so important to God that God said He would destroy anyone that would defile what He calls His temple. Now church, I, I want to again state, this is a New Testament scripture. God's not talking about the way things were in the Old Testament. He's stating to the New Testament church, the Acts 2.38, one God, Jesus' name, tongue-talking church, stating to them that if you defile the temple, God will destroy you. Well, that's not the God that's being painted today in Christian circles, is it? But it's the God of the Bible. It's the New Testament God.
And so we need to ask ourselves, in what ways is it possible to defile the temple of my body? What things could I do that would bring defilement to this temple of God? And, and we pointed out that the answer is it can be defiled in both physical and spiritual means. As we said, there is the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. And, and I promise you, we're going to take a whole lesson and deal with the filthiness of the spirit. Because you can have every detail down pat when it comes to the outer man. And still defile your temple. By allowing it to be filled with hatred. And bitterness. Envy. Strife. You know I've, I've said oftentimes, Apostolic ladies you can let your hair. Be long, your sleeves be long, your skirts be long, and have a long tongue and still be lost. You know, somebody, somebody pointed out to me, I think it was on one of our uh, trips in Africa, it was one of those guides that we were, we were going through. Uh, in fact, I remember that is who it was. I don't know if you were with us on that particular trip, I don't know who was there, but but we were, we were going uh, through one of these, um, what do you call it? Where they, not a safari, but, but, but uh, a reserve, one of these game reserves. And, and we're going through it, and the guide pointed out to us the giraffe, and he talked about how long the giraffe's tongue is. And then as he continued to talk about the giraffe, he mentioned that the giraffe has the smallest heart. He's got the longest tongue and the smallest heart. And, and whoever it was is with us, I said, you know, that'll preach. That will preach. Because the people with the smallest heart usually have the longest tongues. Doth not even nature itself teach you? I'm going to tell you, nature teaches us a lot. God was really smart when he created things. You know that? I mean, he was really, really smart when he created things. And he gave us a lot of lessons from nature. We, we've got to guard our hearts. We've got to guard our spirits. And we are going to talk about that. In fact, I would dare say that if you went through the messages that I've preached and the lessons that I've taught in the 27 years that I've been here, I, I, can, I can promise you I've spent a lot more time dealing with our spirits and our attitudes than I have our outward appearance. But I can't neglect the outward appearance. Because it is a part of our relationship with God. And I'm telling you the way we look on the outside is a clear reflection of what's going on on the inside. If the inside's right. 
If the inside's right, the outside will be right. However, you can get the outside right and not get the inside right. The inside does not necessarily reflect the outside. But the outside does reflect the inside. If the inside is right, the outside will be right. But you can get the outside right and it not necessarily impact the inside. So it's not, it, it doesn't work both ways. Well, we'll talk about the outside or the inside later, right? Now we're going to focus on the outside. So, so what are some ways that we can defile the temple of God? What are some things that we can do that would clearly defile our body? Well, you know, there are things that, that should immediately come to mind. Things like drinking, smoking, illicit drug abuse, drug use, um, among other things. These things defile our body. I mean, in today's society, I guess I ought to start including things like piercings. The Bible's very clear in its prohibition against piercing your body. It doesn't make an exception for the ears. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. Praise God. The Bible does not make an exception for your ears when it gives a prohibition against piercing. In fact, the only time that God ever put his approval on piercing was in the case of a slave. So if you're a slave to sin, then you have a right to pierce your body. And, and by the way, that piercing was in the ear. A pierced ear was a sign of slavery. Scripturally. <clears throat> if you've been set free, you should not be piercing your body in any way, shape, or form. But that's not the lesson tonight. We'll, we, we'll get into that when we get into jewelry. And we will spend a, a night dealing with jewelry. We're going to talk about it. We're going to explain to you why we are against it. There's a reason why, and we'll talk about it. In fact, there's a lot of reasons why. And we'll give you those reasons. So we, we can get into piercing then. I guess we should deal with tattoos at some point. We're talking about defiling the body because the Bible also gives a prohibition against that. And it does not make an exception that if you want to put a scripture or a cross or the face of Jesus... Especially a long-haired, bearded face of Jesus. Well, I can promise you that's not what he looked like. The Apostle Paul made it clear that Jesus didn't have long hair. In spite of what Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci wants you to believe. 
in spite of what the homosexuals of the Middle Ages want, wanted you to believe. Because any of those portraits of Jesus that painted him that way, they made him as effeminate as they could because they wanted him to look like one of them. But he didn't look that way. And I can prove it by the scriptures. And we will. We'll get into that. We'll get into hair. We're going to get into all of those things. We're going to deal with those things. Jesus, by the way, was not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed European. He wasn't. He was a Jew. He was a Middle Easterner. He didn't look like what most of you, especially you Caucasians, want to think Jesus looked like. Uh, he, he was not one of us. Oh, it got really quiet just then. Oh, well, that's another lesson for another night. I'm, I'm going to get into I don't even know how, well, I was talking about tattoos. That's how I got into that. So I'm, I'm okay. I've still got my, still on topic. So we were talking about tattoos. I'm talking about defiling the body. And, and we, we can save that for another night. That's not in my notes. And maybe I need to make note to add it to my notes. Um, in fact, scribe, write it down for me, would you? And, and remind me after service, I need to add piercings and tattoos to my notes on Keeping a clean temple. And we'll just have to, if I finish the rest of this tonight, which is doubtful, I'll have to come back and add it to it before we move on to other things. But, but we want to talk about some things here tonight that will defile the temple of your body. And we're going to start in the area of alcohol. Now, hopefully nobody under the sound of my voice is struggling with alcohol. I, boy, I didn't get any response on that one, did I? Did anybody say amen? Oh, Brother Jaheem, well, thank you, Brother Jaheem. I'm glad you're not struggling with it. I, I, I would hope nobody else is tonight. <laughs> um, those of you out there in Internet land that are listening, would you, would you, would you write amen in the, uh, in the comments or something so I know that there's a few people out there that are not struggling at least. Um, I'm sorry, do what? Like, like and subscribe while you're doing it, yeah. Now that gets me in trouble when we say that. Um, I tell people to like and subscribe, and then I have these preachers who say, you're trying to steal my saints. I, that, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to steal anybody's saints, all right? We've got our own members who are listening online tonight. Some that are sick, some that are working, uh, some that are vacationing, I guess, some that are AWOL, I don't know. Um, AWOL is a military term, absent without leave. Uh, in other words, you didn't get permission, you just skipped. Um... But anyhow, we, we're, not, we're not trying to steal saints from anybody else's church. That's not 
fuck we're doing, but but for those who are listening online and you are doing so legitimately, it would be good if you'd like and subscribe. Just it it would help us uh, kind of helps get the message out there. But anyhow, let me get back to this. Don't don't get me distracted. <laughs> Write down what I tell you to, and don't get me distracted with other things. All right. So so let's talk about alcohol first of all. Um, Proverbs chapter twenty. And verse number 1, Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Whoever is deceived by it is not wise. Wine is a mocker. You know, I, I said the other night, it's amazing to me, most Christian denominations, outside of the Roman Catholic Church and a few uh, very closely connected to it um, do not use alcoholic wine for communion. But I know of some apostolic churches that use wine for communion. We, we don't. Um, I just take the Bible at face value when it says wine is a mocker. It doesn't say unless you're doing it during communion. It's a mocker. Now there are three categories of references to wine or to drinking in the scripture. All right? Three categories of references. So let me give these to you. First of all, there are references where it's mentioned and it's neither condemned nor condoned. Doesn't say it's good, doesn't say it's bad, just mentions it. Um, there are times, now, now that shouldn't bother you. That should not bother you. The Bible talks about Abraham lying about his wife. And it doesn't say he was wrong for doing this. It just mentions that he did it. We all know he was wrong for doing it. There are other scriptures that tell us he was wrong for doing it. So the Bible doesn't have to, every time it mentions something, say this was wrong. Are you following me? So just because there are scriptures that don't specifically say it's wrong, they don't say it's right either. Then there are scriptures where it is identified as a source of misery and or an emblem of the wrath of God. Wine is destructive. And the wrath of God is destructive. And God actually even talks about causing people to become drunken on His wrath. In other words, they're, they're going to lose their senses. And they're no longer going to be in control of their facilities. Their faculties. When God judges them. And then there is this third category. And that's where wine is identified as a blessing. In, in conjunction with things like corn and bread. 
And so because of this last category of scripture, there are some religious movements today that now permit or even encourage the use of intoxicants. They say do it in moderation. But, but I'm telling you that a careful examination of the scripture will reveal that alcoholic beverages are never spoken of favorably. And, and that partaking of any such beverage in any quantity is harmful to the human body. Even small amounts bring damage to your body. I'm going to give you the details in a few minutes. Intoxicants poison the body. They fill the body with toxins. In fact, it's the same root, root word. Intoxicant and toxin. And so for these reasons, I submit to you tonight that drinking alcohol is a sinful practice in the eyes of God. Even if done in moderation. Those references to wine that fall under that first category cannot be appealed to in support of drinking. Because as I said, the scripture often mentions practices without condemning or condoning them. But it's just part of a larger context describing human actions. As I said, Abraham lied. Isaac lied. The Bible does not say they were sinning and doing it. It just says they did it. But we understand from other passages that it was a sin. And then the references in the second category clearly condemn the use of wine in any quantity. And one of these denunciations of wine was written by Solomon, who had been blessed of God with great wisdom. Let's read Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Now, now listen to the questions. Who's got sorrow? Who's got woe? Who finds a lot of contentions? Who has babbling? Who has wounds without any real cause for it? Who has redness of the eyes? Read. I'll tell you who. They that tarry long at the wine. And they that go to seek mixed wine. Read. Now don't look upon the wine when it's red. When it giveth its color in the cup. When it moveth itself aright. Now listen to me. You've got to understand this about the use of the term wine in the Bible. In the Bible, there is no term grape juice. Wine was simply the liquid that came from grapes. Whether it was fermented or not, it was called wine. 
In the Bible, they would speak of wine, even if it was not fermented, it was called wine. It is only in today's society that we make this distinction. But it was not so in Bible times. This is why you find some scriptures that speak of wine as being a blessing. Because wine could be fermented or unfermented. And still be considered wine. But Solomon makes it clear here. Don't look at it when it's red, when it gives its color in the cup, when it moves itself aright. You know what he's describing? He's trying to explain the difference between fermented and unfermented wine. Got no problem with you drinking it if it's not fermented. But if it's fermented, don't even look at it. Stay away from it. Avoid it at all costs. Why? Read on. When it reaches this point of fermentation, it'll bite like a serpent. And it'll sting like an adder. When you start drinking fermented wine, alcoholic beverage, you start looking at strange women. Your heart starts uttering perverse things. You're going to be like somebody that lies down in the midst of the sea. Or he that's lying at the top of the mast. You're thrown about. You're rolling around. You don't have control of yourself anymore. Read. Somebody hit me and, 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 and I wasn't even sick. There was no reason for this to happen. They beaten me and I... I didn't even feel it. When am I going to wake up? And then I'm going right back to it again. It becomes addictive. In spite of the pain, the sorrow that it brings, you go running right back to it again. Solomon said, Beware. You better beware. This passage very graphically describes the evils of intoxicating beverages. The sure result is sorrow. It's woe. It's contention. It's senseless talk. It's wounds. Drinking it produces no good result. There is nothing positive that comes from it. Nothing. breaks down moral restraints. It causes a person to do things they would not otherwise do and say things they would not otherwise say. A person who drinks is in danger of immediate death because of the effects of their intoxication. You don't have control of yourself. You're not thinking straight. You might walk right out in front of a car. And woe be to the person who gets behind the wheel of a car when they're intoxicated. And woe be to others who are on the road when a driver is intoxicated. 
And this doesn't even start to deal with the long-term addictive results of alcohol. Isaiah 5, verse 11. Woe to them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink. Those that continue until night till wine inflame them. Isaiah 28 verse 7. They've erred through wine and through strong drink. Read. The priest and prophet have erred because of strong drink. They're swallowed up by their wine. They stumble in their judgment. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I'm telling you, I've, I've talked to conservative apostolic preachers who refuse to condemn alcohol because they use it in their communion service. So they can't condemn it altogether. When pressed, they have to say, well, there's no real scripture against social drinking. Now, that's dangerous. That's dangerous when you reach that point. And and listen, I'm not going to get into why. There's a lot of reasons why we don't use wine during communion. One of them is fermentation requires yeast. You know what the Bible calls yeast? Leaven. Now isn't it interesting that for the wafer you have to use unleavened bread because leaven is a type of sin. And his body, there was no sin in him. But yet they use leavened drink to represent his blood. Why would you introduce sin into the blood of Christ? This is another lesson for another day. But, but I'm going to tell you, when I first got in the church, my pastor was a man who had been saved from, from being a wino. That was his testimony. He was a wino before God saved him. And I heard him say... I don't know. I've not, I've not tasted alcohol since the day God saved me. He said, I don't know what would happen to me if I picked up a communion glass and it had wine in it. I don't know where it would take me to. I don't know what it would do to me. Now listen, if there's anything the Bible's clear about, it's don't put a stumbling block before your brother. And you know that word stumbling block. Don't cause him to stumble. Don't, don't cause him to fall. Don't do something that would lead him into temptation. How then can we put alcoholic wine in the communion cup and ask somebody saved from that to drink it again? Now this, is, this really is not supposed to be a part of my lesson, but... In fact, it doesn't look like we're going to get beyond 
alcohol here tonight to get into any of the other things. So we'll have to save all of these things for another night. But, but listen, this is these verses deal with the addictive nature of intoxicating beverages. And, and it points out the fact that those who partake in them will err in matters of judgment. Their senses are polluted. And so that brings us to the third category that people use to excuse the use of alcoholic beverages. That third category is where wine is, is expressed in, in the sense of it being a blessing. Now there, there's no telling how many people have fallen into this treacherous trap of drunkenness. By starting out with the simple thought, I'll just take a little. And, and they want to go to scriptures like where Paul says to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Now, please tell me, what doctor is going to prescribe fermented wine for stomach issues? How much sense does it even make that if you've got stomach issues, fermented wine is the answer? That doesn't make any sense. You know, fermentation not only requires the use of yeast, it's a natural yeast that's on the grape. It not only requires the use of yeast, but it is actually when the, when the juice begins to die. It's a dying process. And so to use wine in communion is to say that the blood of Christ is dying. His blood doesn't bring death, it brings life. And again, Paul, Paul was not advising Timothy to use fermented wine to help with stomach problems. That doesn't even make sense. There are two kinds of wine mentioned in the scripture. There's, there is a, a, a book. Um, I don't even know if it's still in print today. Uh, the book is titled Bible Wines or Laws of Fermentation and Wines of the Ancient. Written by name... Uh, by a man named William Patton. And I'm going to quote from that book here tonight. This is a quote. He says, There were two kinds of wine in ancient use. The one was sweet, pleasant, refreshing, unfermented. The other was exciting, inflaming, intoxicating. Each was called wine. It's found on page 132 of his book. Patton then meticulously documents the fact that unfermented beverages called wine existed and was commonly used by the ancients. And he gives abundant proof of the generic nature of the two Hebrew words that are translated wine, yayin and shachar. Yayin, translated wine, designates grape juice or the liquid which the fruit of the vine yields. This may be new or old. It may be sweet or sour. It may be fermented or unfermented, intoxicating or intoxicating. 
unintoxicating. He says on page 56 of his book. He went into great detail researching all of this. So the same Hebrew word refers to toxicating or non-intoxicating wine. Fermented or unfermented wine. Shakar is translated strong drink. And it signifies, according to this man, sweet drink. Expressed from fruits other than the grape. So you've got other fruits that they get wine from. And, and usually shakar is used to designate the fruit or the juice that comes from those fruits. And again, it can be either fermented or unfermented. The same word is used regardless. So these two words are generic. They are used in the scripture to deal with both fermented and unfermented drink. And only the context can determine which meaning is intended here. There are other Hebrew uh, words that are relevant that carry, uh, they always carry the same meaning. One of these is tirosh. Tirosh is, is sometimes translated wine or new wine or sweet wine. And this word is always an unfermented drink. It refers to the juice of something other than the grape, such as corn or olive. All right? Um, the New Testament uses a generic Greek word, oinos. Oinos corresponds exactly to yayin in the Old Testament. And it too designates the juice of all, uh, all of the juice of the grape in all of its stages. And only the context can determine whether it's fermented or unfermented. But it's the same word. All right? And the English word wine comes from a Latin word, venom or vinum, which is the equivalent to the Greek oinos. Vinus is a generic word that refers to the juice of the grape in all of its forms, as was the English wine during the era of the translation of the King James Version. So more recent dictionaries will define wine exclusively as a fermented beverage, but we must be careful not to allow the modern day usage Limit that to what was in use at the time of the translation of our Bible. We can't make it retroactive. All right? The reason for the development of this restricted meaning of wine to fermented liquid only is described uh, in another book. This book is called System of Logic. It was written by John Stuart Mill. And in his book, he says a generic term is always liable to become limited to a single species if people have occasion to think and speak of that species oftener than of anything else contained in the genus. The tide of custom first drifts the word on the shore of a particular meaning, then retires and leaves it there. So in other words, he's, he's saying that, that many times there are generic terms that over time end up becoming more specific in their meaning than they were when they were originally used. All right, and, and he says this is the case for the word wine or the Hebrew or Greek words that were used. So what did Paul mean when he said to, to Timothy, 
drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities in 1 Timothy 5.23. Was he commanding Timothy to indulge in fermented alcoholic beverages for the sake of a weak stomach? I, I, again, I, I stress this would be precisely the wrong prescription. It'd be the worst thing he could do. Fermented wine created in, in Paul's day produced headaches, produced what was called the dropsy. It produced madness. It produced stomach complaints. It didn't heal them. It created them. But yet there were unfermented wines that were exceedingly wholesome and useful to the body, according to Patton uh, in the book that I quoted earlier. So it makes more sense that Paul is telling Timothy, drink some pure grape juice. In fact, some of you may not know this, but in its beginning, Welch's was started as a company that would mass produce unfermented grape juice for communion. Now they've gone a long ways from their beginnings, but that's how the company started. It was to produce a pure grape juice for the, sub, for, for the purpose of serving it during a communion service. But Paul... Paul actually told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and 3 that a bishop must not be given to wine. So why would he then turn around and tell Timothy, drink wine? Well, context explains the difference here. He's not contradicting himself. A bishop must not be one that's given to fermented wine. But you, Timothy, you've got some stomach issues. Drink unfermented wine to help your stomach. All right, And then some um, misunderstand Ephesians 5.18. This is not in your notes, but Ephesians 5.18 say, be, says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And so then they say, Okay, well as long as you don't drink to the point of excess, you're alright. But the literal meaning of the Greek word translated excess is dissolution or dissipation. So in this case, the word excess doesn't refer to quantity. It refers to that which is inherent in fermented wine. He says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is. He's talking about something that is existing in the wine, not how much of it you drink. He doesn't say don't drink it to excess. He says, don't be drunk with it. Because in it is this dissolution, this dissipation. And the word dissipate means to drive away or to disperse. It is to, it, to attenuate or to reduce or, or to bring it to the point of disappearing. So to spend or expend intemperately or wastefully, to squander, to use up, Especially recklessly, to exhaust, to cause to lose irreversibly. These are the things that Paul said dwells in fermented wine. Physicians say that the first drink of alcohol intoxicates. The very first drink. 
actually starts affecting your mind. After that first drink, drunkenness is simply a matter of degree. You drink one drink of alcohol, you are drunk. It's only a matter of how drunk are you. Here's some statistics on alcoholism uh, from the CDC website. In the United States, motor vehicle related injuries are the leading cause of death for people ages 1 to 34. Nearly 5 million people sustain injuries that require an emergency room visit. The economic impact is notable. Motor vehicle crashes cost around $230 billion. This was way back in 2000. The cost of human suffering cannot be measured in dollars but must be included. An alcohol-related traffic death occurs every 20 minutes. Uh, in 2008, that was upgraded to every 15 minutes. Alcohol causes about 100,000 deaths per year. 40% of Americans will be involved in an alcohol-related crash during their lives. 90% of unwanted pregnancies result from alcohol-lowered inhibitions. 36% of suicide victims have a history of alcohol abuse or were drinking shortly before taking their own lives. The only consistent Christian position is total abstinence from all alcoholic beverages. I'm here to proclaim to you tonight that moderation is the first step toward immoderation. The person who refuses to drink will never have to worry that he's drinking too much. He'll never be tempted to drunkenness. Or in the more polite term of our society, alcoholism. And let me say this. Society today wants to tell us that alcoholism is a disease. If it is a disease, it is the only disease that is a matter of choice. You chose to develop this disease. And it is your choices that will heal you of this disease. If it's truly a disease. It's not a disease. It's a sin. But thank God you can be delivered from it. Though you may be bound by it, you can be delivered from it by the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, hallelujah. I've got to quit there. It's 9.01. I've got to quit there. I tell you what, let's go ahead and throw in one more scripture as the musicians come. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 12. Listen to this. I will not be brought under the power of any. Even those things that are lawful. You want to try to make a case that there's no sin in a few social drinks? I'm here to tell you, even that which is lawful, Paul said, I'm not going to be brought under the power of even lawful things. In other words, if something starts air causing my judgment to be marred, if something brings me under its control, I will not use it. 
And if doctors are right that even one drink of alcohol impairs your judgment to some degree, then you're being brought under the power of that alcohol. Now we'll come back and talk about this scripture in, in um, uh, next week's lesson as well, Lord willing. But, but it fits right here, so we might as well address it right here. I'm not going to be brought under the power of anything other than the power of God. That's the only thing I want affecting my judgment. That's the only thing I want affecting my judgment is the power of God. Well, let's stand tonight. Let's lift our hands. Let's love the Lord together.